ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to uh, the second of our Hunterian Museum lectures this season. Uh, we're very pleased to be joining together with one of our Museum Mile colleagues, and if you don't know of the Museum Mile, you should do, a fabulous collection of 13 museums in a rough mile, um, ranging from Bloomsbury all the way down to the Courtauld Gallery in the Strand. Anyway, uh, joined together with one of my favourite fellow museums on the mile, which is the Library and Museum of Freemasonry on the Healing Through Kindness, a brief history of the Royal Masonic Hospital. I'd like to introduce you to our speaker today, uh, Susan Snell, qualified as an archivist in the 1980s and declared for a great many archival resources uh, following her qualification, and now uh, joined the Library and Museum of Freemasonry 11 years ago and is keen to promote its resources. Uh, so I would encourage all of you who have not before been to the Library and Museum of Freemasonry to take advantage of the information on your chairs and go. They have excellent free tours of their beautiful building. Um, so Susan gained her MA in 18th century studies at King's three years ago, curated an exhibition to commemorate the bicentenary of anti-slavery legislation, and she's delighted to give this presentation as it coincides with the completion of her project to catalogue the archives of the Royal Masonic Hospital. And the associated exhibition is free to view at the Library and Museum of Freemasonry until April 2017. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Hayley, and to her colleagues for this really wonderful invitation to come and tell you more about the Royal Mon Masonic Hospital today. The Library and Museum of Freemasonry, located at Freemasons Hall in Covent Garden, commemorates the centenary this year of the opening of the Royal Masonic Hospital. The celebrations include an exhibition entitled Healing Through Kindness, which is open for viewing by all visitors until April 2017. The exhibition evolved from a project to catalogue all the archives and many artefacts relating to the hospital in the collections of the library and museum. Details for all these items available for research are included on the online catalogue of the Library and Museum. In addition, there are three films relating to the hospital which were digitised last year and are viewable via the British Film Institute's BFI player. And if there's time at the end, I'll be able to show a brief extract from one of those films. This presentation aims to provide an introduction to the history of this world-renowned medical facility which actually opened as a war hospital during the First World War. After the cessation of hostilities, it provided care and treatment to Freemasons and their dependents for over 70 years, expanding from a site on the Fulham Road to purpose-built premises later extended at Ravenscourt Park. The hospital ran a leading nurse training centre treated thousands of servicemen during World War II, and its consultants developed medical treatments that became standard NHS practice. Modernization costs, inflation during the 70s and 80s, and increased contributions to care expected from members seeking treatment coincided with the expansion of private medical centers outside London and improved NHS options. The hospital, at one time the largest 
private medical facility in the UK could not compete, and this led to its closure by 1996. Support for medical treatment and care is now accessible for members and their dependents on application to the Masonic Charitable Foundation. Former patients, medical staff and nurses all speak with great affection for the hospital. The wide scope of treatments provided, the high standards of food and care. By its closure, the hospital extended beyond the dreams of those who conceived an idea for a small nursing home for members. Before the creation of the NHS, individuals with middling financial means had two options when seeking medical care, expensive private treatment or charity hospitals. There were few options for individuals seeking more than basic medical treatment or costly private medical facilities. Several members of one London Lodge, Malmesbury, number 3156, conceived an idea for an alternative scheme and established a Malmesbury Lodge Masonic Nursing Home Committee in 1911. Its members included Major Charles Heaton Ellis, the Honourable Archibald Dudley Ryder, Major Kenneth Robert Balfour, Augustus Turner, Charles Herbert Thorpe and Percy Still. The last two remained stalwart supporters and maintained lifelong associations with the hospital. But the surprising thing is that none of them had direct medical experience. They were all engineers or associated with other professions. So as none of the members had any direct medical experience or knowledge, they sought advice from another Freemason, Richard Kershaw. He was the secretary and general superintendent at the Central London Throat, Nose and Ear Hospital. Kershaw was a member of Noscomia Lodge, which had been consecrated in 1909 for individuals associated with hospital administration. Kershaw provided a detailed scoping study that was used by committee members as a basis for seeking support for establishing a Masonic nursing home. The committee established a medical advisory committee comprising Freemasons who were London consultants and lobbied members of the influential London lodges to support their scheme. Percy Still and C.H. Thorpe issued a printed prospectus based on Kershaw's model for the proposed nursing home and sought approval for the scheme from Lord Amptill, the programme master. Another key supporter, Charles Edward Keyser, chairman of the Hospital Appeal Fund and later secretary and chairman of the Freemasons Hospital and Nursing Home, emphasised the benefits of a Masonic medical facility. It was aimed at members seeking alternate care to public hospitals, but without the means to afford the expense of private nursing homes. At Grand Lodge Quarterly Communications, Charles Keyser proposed that a grant of £1,000 should be made to the Masonic Nursing Home, but members in West Yorkshire passed a resolution stating that they were far too far away from London to take advantage of its benefits. The scheme had already raised £6,000, but sought recognition and the active support of Grand Lodge. 
Many members were reluctant to commit resources to form another Masonic charity, as the organization already supported the Royal Masonic Benevolent Institution for aged Freemasons, the Royal Masonic Institution for Girls, and the Royal Masonic Institution for Boys, offering care for the children of deceased Freemasons, respectively. Each charity was financed by the Masonic provinces, raising funds during annual festivals, with subscriptions from individual members and events held to generate donations. The organizers argued that after raising 30,000 pounds for establishing and equipping the home, the scheme aimed to be self-supporting and not a drain on the other Masonic charities and would not require an annual festival. In June 1914, a chain of events led to the outbreak of World War I and Britain entered the conflict that August. During the first two years of the war, concerns were raised at Grand Lodge about the reduction in numbers of initiates, with certificates issued declining between 1914 and 1916. In consequence, this led to a significant reduction in charitable contributions. However, an unprecedented recovery in membership stats after 1916 surpassed expectations, enabling one Masonic charity, the Royal Masonic Benevolent Institution, to increase payments to aged members seeking assistance. Such increases were welcomed by recipients because there was a lot of inflation during the war that affected basic commodities. The membership increase was due in part to a rule change that accepted new members serving with the armed forces, as for the first time, candidates below the rank of corporal were initiated. Meanwhile, the Masonic Nursing Home Committee continued to raise funds. Grand Lodge entered into discussions with the War Office and offered to meet the running costs of a hospital provided the government identified suitable premises. The hospital project, which aims to provide succor, healing and relief for our sailors and soldiers wounded in the great struggle for right and justice in which we are now engaged, was launched by the Freemason and Lord Mayor of London, Sir Charles Cheers Wakefield, at an inaugural luncheon at the Mansion House. The former Chelsea Hospital for Women at 237 Fulham Road was offered at the, as the Freemasons War Hospital on a lease with an option to purchase. The hospital, classified as a primary or Class A facility by the War Office, suitable for receiving wounded men directly from the trenches, accepted a first convoy of patients soon after its official opening on the 6th of September 1916. But the initial 60-bed capacity soon increased to 77. A year later, based on the numbers of servicemen treated, the War Office provided capitation grants of almost £4,000, calculated as three shillings per week per patient. And the hospital committee received contributions from members in excess of £23,000. The District Grand Lodge of Japan held a concert to raise money. The District Grand Lodge of Bengal raised almost £2,000. The Grand Lodge of Victoria in Australia 
and other Grand Lodges worldwide express solidarity for members by sending donations. The British Red Cross provided nurses and equipment, but the War Hospital provided, proved a popular cause for members to support and raise funds to meet its considerable running costs. Over 4,000 injured servicemen from across the British Empire were treated at the hospital after its opening. Patient care included costly radiant heat, electrotherapy and massage, supervised by Dr. Dobson, with a fully equipped operating theatre. But running costs proved much higher than expected. Heat therapy was particularly effective in the treatment of cases from Mesopotamia, with the paralyzed hand of one sergeant hospitalized after the escape from Kut el Amara recovering well. A weekly report book compiled by the matron, Miss Minnie Evelyn Windermer, for the hospital's house committee includes information about life and treatment at the hospital. It refers to problems retaining staff, including Red Cross and VAD nurses, as well as cooking and cleaning staff. Female staff became a premium, and the hospital competed to retain qualified nurses and domestic staff. Historians estimate that approximately two women, two million women, filled roles previously undertaken by men during the First World War, with the proportion of women in employment rising from 24% in July 1914 to 37% by November 1918. The Freemasons War Hospital introduced a badge. This is where the useful pointer comes in handy. Here we are, there's the badge. To reward, to reward nurses that remained there for six months. Matron's report book provides details about concerts arranged by London Lodges for patients and Christmas celebrations, which included a competition for the best decorated ward. Ten vads went around singing carols with a lantern and staff managed to find turkeys to serve. Every worker at the hospital received a present from Father Christmas and every patient had a stocking. A church service was held on Christmas morning and each patient had two visitors with tea parties. In the evening, a review performed by eight men and written by the doctor included novelty sausages for the wounded, indistinguishable from hand grenades, which may be thrown around with impunity, producing harmless but much mirth-provoking explosions. And kippers at breakfast became known as two-eyed steaks. The volume, maintained between May 1918 and September 1919, records incidents such as difficulties with equipment, conflicts with doctors, and one patient refusing a massage by the physical therapist. Patients arrived from tr for treatment from all areas of the British Empire, and London Lodges formed a committee to visit patients with Masonic connections in London hospitals. In September 19, 
2015, the Grand Secretary wrote to officers in charge of all military hospitals in London, informing them about the scheme to visit sailors and soldiers by request, following a complaint by colonial members of apparent indifference by London Freemasons. Hospitals displayed notices about this scheme so that any sailor or soldier member or their sons could apply for a visit if desired. However, the most unexpected contribution to the work of the Freemasons War Hospital came from members at the Ruhleben German internment camp who sent a cheque in very reduced circumstances for £15. Mentioning this donation in November 1916, C.H. Sharp declared that this was a most fraternal act and at the same time one of the most interesting and touching events in connection with our hospital scheme. A stoneware tablet was placed on the wall of one of the wards to record this gift in memory of their fellow prisoners who'd lost their lives at Ruhleben. Some patients were initiated in or joined London lodges while being treated at the hospital, which helped to promote the initiation of members with disabilities. Those blinded in action or caring for those who lost their sight formed Looks in Tenebris Lodge in London in July 1918, and that means light from darkness. Grand Lodge supported other wartime charities, included the, including the Blinded Soldiers and Sailors Hostel, later known as St, as St Dunstan's, and now Blind Veterans UK. This was founded by Arthur Pearson, a newspaper magnate and entrepreneur who had lost his sight in 1913. Fundraising activities by members were augmented by events held by the wives and daughters of Freemasons, which enabled uninterrupted assistance to be provided to the central Masonic charities, in addition to various non-Masonic war funds. Another Masonic beneficiary was the British Red Cross Society, to which more than £2,000 was donated before March 1919. This relationship was doubtless facilitated as Arthur Stanley, Provincial Grand Master of Lancashire from 1910, was appointed Chairman of the Executive Committee of the Red Cross in 1914. By that December, the rules of the Book of Constitution, the Masonic Book of Constitution, were extended so that members serving the British Red Cross and St. John's, St. John's Ambulance Association were not excluded for arrears in addition to those on active service. The Masonic Ladies Association of the hospital contributed sewing, repairs and making things and former girls' school pupils volunteered in the evenings, one saying, that as the Freemasons had been very good to her and her family, she wanted to do something to help if she could to show her gratitude. An amateur lady photographer developed all the plates for the radiographer and patients went to St. Mark's London No. 2 General Hospital for discharge under Major Lee. One sister at the hospital, the wife of an Australian doctor at the front, joined the hospital from King Edward's Seventh Hospital for officers. Another sister, a highly qualified nurse, was the wife of a doctor in charge of the base hospital at Salonica. 
Masonic generosity was unprecedented and the surplus raised enabled the hospital committee to occupy and run Cliff House at Caversham near Reading as a convalescent home for 25 patients. In April 1918, the Bishop of London offered Fulham Palace with the sanction of the War Office to the British Red Cross Society. This was placed at the disposal of the Freemasons War Hospital and equipped as a second centre with Mrs. Fox Simons as matron. Rooms were converted to accommodation for over 100 patients and a wooden panel with the word fortitude hung in the drawing room, now on display at the Museum of Fulham Palace. Arthur Stanley served as the first chairman of the college, later the Royal College of Nursing in 1916, formed by Dame Sarah Swift. And the photograph I showed slightly earlier, the top photograph, the lady in the dark uniform on the right, that is Dame Sarah Swift there at um, Fulham Palace. And on the certificate that Freemasons were given for raising funds for the hospital. You can see here Percy Still and C.H. Thorpe are there as the joint honorary secretaries. This is the Freemasons War Hospital on the Fulham Road. This is Fulham Palace, and this is the convalescent home at Caversham. The Freemasons War Hospital facilities treated over 4,000 members of the armed forces during the First World War. And the Freemason, Arthur Stanley, stated with satisfaction that of the 14 to 15,000 hospitals under the control of the Red Cross Society, none excels the one provided by the Freemasons. Grand Lodge made a decision in, in September 1917 to purchase the Fulham Road Hospital premises in order to convert it into a Masonic facility. The premises reopened as the Freemasons Hospital and Nursing Home by autumn 1919, providing care for 46 inpatients. A scale of contributions to, towards care was approved, but a Samaritan fund covered fees for those unable to pay. A photograph taken during the 1920s, soon after the Freemasons Hospital and Nursing Home opened to members, shows one of the four small bedded wards with little change to nurse uniforms. It was soon apparent that patient capacity and medical facilities at Fulham Road were inadequate, despite post-war structural alterations. An extension fund was launched by the committee in 1929 to raise endowment funds of £250,000 to ensure the hospital was self-supporting. A permanent commemorative jewel crafted by C.L. Doman, who designed the World War I Armistice Medal, was issued to donors to the extension fund. Bearing the hospital badge, Humanity Tending the Sick, or in Latin, Igros Sanat Humanitas, it featured a dark blue ribbon with a light blue strip down the centre, attached through a pentalpha or five-pointed star, long recognised as a symbol of health. 
the wives and daughters of members at home and abroad who received memento brooches in recognition of their contribution formed working parties to raise funds for the hospital and 70 bodies qualified as founders by subscribing 100 guineas or more. In 1931, land overlooking Ravenscourt Park, an early 19th century estate developed by George Scott and landscaped by Humphrey Repton, was identified as a site for the new purpose-built 180-bed hospital. The new building was erected on the site of a property called Parkside, occupied by the Ford family, proprietors of Brown's Hotel. The first telephone call by Alexander Graham Bell took place at night between Brown's Hotel and Parkside in 1877. On the 19th of May, 1932, the hospital foundation stone connected electrically with a replica stone was laid by the Grand Master at a grand Masonic gathering attended by over 12,000 people, including four royal princes at a lavish cemetery at Olympia. Construction commenced in 1931 on the American-influenced modernist hospital building designed by Sir John Burnett, Tayton Lawn, and their architectural firm received the Royal Institute of British Architects gold medal in 1933. Numerous collecting boxes in the shape of a perfect ashlar were issued to lodges of instruction to collect funds for the hospital's general or Samaritan fund, which funded treatment for those unable to contribute towards care. Lodges and members signing up as patrons, vice patrons and grand vice patrons were granted voting rights according to levels of donation. In addition, the hospital appeal included a unique fundraising concept. Lodges, provinces and districts were invited to subscribe a thousand pounds or more to name beds and special plaques were affixed above beds on the wards. Those qualifying as patron lodges by contributing a set amount to the appeal fund received ornate certificates, including figures representing charity and healing designed by Gilbert William Bays from above the hospital entrance door. The new building opened on the 12th of July, 1933, with a grand ceremony attended by King George V and Queen Mary. The hospital became known as the Royal Masonic Hospital. New purpose-built children's boards included murals designed by the artist Reginald Hen Henry Lewis, supervised by Frank Owen Salisbury. Nurses continued to live in accommodation near the former hospital staff site at Fowlis Gardens, Kensington, and other houses within the Ravenscourt Park site served as staff housing. Further fundraising ensured that the same architects designed a nurse's home, which was opened by the Princess Royal in May 1938, now a block of mansion flats known as Ashlar Court. The nurse's home included an Elford recreation room, paid for by a member of the hospital's board of management, which hosted numerous parties, and several of the nurses have been keen to tell me about 
the parties at Christmas and at other times of the year. Once again, lodges and members sponsored individual rooms. During World War II, the hospital treated 8,640 servicemen, including over 600 American officers and personnel from other allies. Notable individuals that visited the hospital included Winston Churchill, who came to see Sir Dudley Pound, Admiral of the Fleet, and Queen Mary, who visited her son-in-law, Earl Harewood, the Grand Master. Flight Lieutenant Richard Hope Hillary was treated at the hospital for severe burns before his transfer to East Grinstead for plastic surgery. He included a, an account of his life at the hospital in his autobiography, The Last Enemy, and this story is retold by Sebastian Fawkes in The Fatal Englishman. One nurse, Jean Hyatt, in her final year of training at the outbreak of the Second World War, recalled in 2005, I was moved to the Royal Masonic Hospital at Hammersmith in 1941, which experienced the worst of the London Blitz and lasted every night for three to four months. It didn't stop us going out, we just hoped for the best. I can clearly remember the awful fires and the total devastation of huge areas of bombing, much of it residential. Travelling by tube was the safest way. One night, my train was stopped because of the bombing, so a very kind station master let me sleep on a couch in his little office and even bought me a cup of tea in the morning. At least the bombing eased off a little bit the next day. The British Hospitals Association provided acetate sheeting to protect workers and patients from blast-damaged windows. The matron, Eva Dugdale, received a Royal Red Cross model medal from King George VI in July 1946 in recognition of her role in treating thousands of military and naval patients. A plaque to commemorate the wartime role of the hospital was unveiled by Manny Shinwell, Secretary of State, in 1948. The post-war Labour government decided to tackle medical care as hospitals were left without adequate resources to function effectively, proposing the formation of the National Health Service. Staff at the Royal Masonic Hospital discussed the plans, but it was granted exemption from inclusion. Originally located in the hospital basement, a nurse training school had opened in 1948. It gained a reputation for training highly skilled nursing staff and consultants in NHS hospitals often sought out Royal Masonic Hospital trained nurses. Training lasted for three years and students gained additional experience in outpatient care, gynaecology and midwifery, accident and emergency and paediatrics at other hospitals. A convalescent home at Frinton-on-Sea, Essex was added to the hospital portfolio in 1953 and this remained open, reducing pressure on bed occupancy until the 1970s. Another appeal was launched to raise funds for an extension, including new operating theatres, a chapel, outpatient care, physiotherapy, and a purpose-built nurse training school. The Wakefield Wing, named after Sir Charles Cheers Wakefield, 
was opened by Queen Elizabeth, Queen Mother, in December 1958. The nurse training facilities included purpose-built classrooms, study areas, and covered all aspects of patient care. Nurse uniform include, included various belts and hats according to the level of training, and qualified nurses were eligible to wear a buckle with a square and compass design and special jewel. <clears throat> Each year, jewels and certificates were presented to nurses at a special prize day ceremony to which parents were invited. In the post-war years, medical treatment transformed and the Royal Masonic Hospital attempted to keep up with and play its role in the delivery and development of new techniques. The hospital launched a redevelopment and modernization fund in 1970 which aimed to raise two million over five years for another extension. Members contributing 12 pounds or more were entitled to wear a jewel designed by the artist Leslie Durbin, included a raised hand inspired by a Botticelli artwork. In 1972, the Association of Friends of the Royal Masonic Hospital was formed in order to raise additional funds. Volunteers ran a library and shop which sold ties, sweatshirts, glassware and stationery. Members were encouraged to take tours of the hospital on Saturday afternoons. But inflation during the early 1970s increased the modernisation costs to 4 million, a target that was reached by 1976. However, by that date, an additional 5 million was needed to continue upgrading facilities. The new extension was opened. Sorry, just lost my place. Where am I? The new extension was opened on the 1st of December 1976 by the Grand Master, His Royal Highness the Duke of Kent, with Arthur S. B. Porrick, Chairman of the Hospital Board, including four new operating theatres and pathology labs. The extension was known as the Percy Steel Wing in honour of this former Joint Secretary of the hospital, where he died in 1968, aged 99. Grand Lodge appointed a committee of inquiry in 1971 to consider the role of the charities in serving the interests of members. The results were published two years later as the Bagnall Report, which made several recommendations about the hospital. These included accepting non-Masonic fee-paying patients and establishing a separate charity, the Masonic Foundation for the Aged and the Sick, to make a distinction between the administrative functions of the hospital and its charitable aims. A second inquiry, leading to the Drake Report in 1984, investigated how the Masonic charities might best provide for aged and sick members. Its main recommendation was to close the hospital, but, but despite Grand Lodge supporting this option, the closure proposal failed. Insufficient members, many of whom had contributed to the work or who'd who had received treatment at the hospital, supported this option. In 1979, the School of Nursing of the Royal Masonic Hospital and the Roehampton School of Nursing formed a partnership to deliver training, a unique venture between an independent hospital and the NHS district. 
With three locations delivering the training program, it enabled student nurses to gain experience at the Royal Masonic Hospital, Queen Mary's Hospital, Roehampton, and St John's Hospital at Battersea. New flats for student nurses, known as the Frank Douglas Court, opened as part of the Percy Still Wing expansion plans in the 1970s. Nurses continued to be trained at the hospital until March 1986, when rules on training issued by the General Nursing Council stipulated facilities that could not be provided by all parties forming the consortium. In 1990, Grand Lodge commissioned the management consultants, Teach Ross, to review all aspects of administration at the hospital. The subsequent report recommended providing care to more private fee-paying patients and separating the Samaritan Fund, responsible for distributing funds to aged and sick Freemasons, from hospital administration. The Hospital Board of Management rejected these proposals and in consequence, the Duke of Kent as Grand Master resigned as the hospital's patron. A new board continued to oversee the running and management of the hospital and fundraising was once again promoted amongst members. Despite such financial uncertainties and restructuring, new departments included a private IVF unit run by Professor Robert Winston, who wasn't a Freemason, but his father, stepfather and uncle were, and his secondary education was supported by his father's lodge. And the other gentleman involved with the IVF unit was Raoul Magara. The hospital celebrated its Golden Jubilee in 1983 and Diamond Jubilee 10 years later, with concerts organised by the Royal Masonic Hospital Association for Friends at the Royal Albert Hall. New private treatments were provided at the hospital in specialities such as sports injury, then it's in its infancy, and neuro-linguistic therapy, then a new way of treating patients with eating disorders, alcoholism and other symptoms. By the 1990s, members seeking treatment contributed much higher fees and costs for private patients increased. This coincided with the expansion of private hospital providers with competitive rates nearer to members' homes. NHS improvements and inherited expansion improvement costs from the inflation hit 1970s affected running costs at the hospital. As the Tushwash report indicated, rising costs made the hospital financially unsustainable. An official receiver was appointed by the Charity Commission in January 1994 to manage the affairs of the hospital. Closure was recommended and the Samaritan Fund separated to safeguard its assets. After their closure in 1996, the hospital buildings and nurses' home were sold. The nursing home became a luxury apartment complex, and in 1996, the medical block reopened as the private Stamford Hospital. 
The premises were leased to the NHS in 2002 in a bid to reduce waiting lists, but closed again in 2006. The main wing may reopen as a private hospital next year. The new Masonic Samaritan Fund was established after separating from the hospital in around 1990. Members supporting its activities by donating £100 and lodges donated £500 were entitled to wear a jewel. The funds offered assistance to members and their dependents, enabling them to access private medical treatment when facing lengthy NHS waiting lists. Relaunched as the Masonic Samaritan Fund in 2008, earlier this year it united with the three other Masonic charities to form the Masonic Charitable Foundation. This new body combines the work of the separate charities and provides a central point of contact for members and their dependents seeking assistance. In conclusion, the Royal Masonic Hospital developed as the largest independent hospital in Britain and the only private facility to provide a world-renowned nurse training school. Its consultants developed surgical techniques at the hospital that became mainstream NHS practice. And for many years, it offered accessible private care and treatment from leading consultants to members, wives and children. Affected by the 1970s inflation, the hospital struggled to maintain its role serving members and other patients. After the 1960s, the hospital in experienced increasing competition from the private sector and the transformation of medical services and facilities. Nursing and medical staff, many of whom now work in private as well as NH role, NHS roles in the UK and overseas, are proud of the excellent training and facilities they help to deliver at the hospital. The Healing with Kindness exhibition commemorates the work of the hospital and its staff and will be open for viewing free of charge until next April from Monday to Saturday, 10 until 5pm. Thank you. going to show you some of the film which will give you a flavour of what life was like at the hospital. It doesn't have any sound so you're welcome to um, just look at this for a few minutes. So here's a patient being treated. Here's a patient being treated as you can see and the nurses um, I'm having groups of nurses come and visit me um, who are having reunions and some of them haven't seen each other for 20 years and it's always really touching. They're extremely proud of wearing the badge and also the buckle from the hospital. Uh, some of you may recall that when Prince George was born, one of the nurses on the steps of the private hospital um, was wearing the Royal Masonic Hospital buckle that was picked up on there. So nurses tell me that um, some of these practices wouldn't happen today. Here's the PATH lab. And it's fascinating to see the changes and advances in medical treatment. Initially, the hospital shared um, PATH 
lab facilities with Queen Charlotte's, which was originally on an adjacent site at uh, Ravenscourt Park, but had to build their own in time. So for anybody interested in the development of medical treatment post-war, these films are an absolute uh, goldmine to show exactly what they were doing and how they were doing this. So um, please pass on news. They are freely available from the BFI iPlayer. Here's a up-to-the-minute centrifuge. All the facilities at the hospital were the very best that could be afforded. Um, highly influenced by um, developments in America. But they did have accidents. Um, in the 1950s, there was a small explosion in one of the um, operating theatres. I gather that um, anaesthetics have improved somewhat these days, but the floor of the operating theatre had to be rubber so that you didn't get any sparks or anything like that and they had to wear special scrubs and use special equipment to avoid any sparks. So it goes on. It's just a, a taster. Well, I'm sure you'd like to join me in thanking Sue very much for coming here today. We do have a little time for questions. That clock is five minutes fast, so it's only quarter two by my watch. Uh, so, if people would like to take turn in raising their hands, if they have questions. I have got further details about that. I can't remember exactly, but I'll give on the leaflet, um, you can email me and I'll try and find that out for you. I think the, the, the convalescent nursing home had been a hotel and they converted it to use as a convalescent home. I've spoken to some of the nurses and they say it was rather like going on holiday. You know, it was a bit of a treat to get posted out to Frinton. And, um, but unfortunately, as in many cases, it became very expensive to run. It needed a lot of refurbishment work and the desire wasn't there by the 1970s to undertake that, unfortunately. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you could join me in please thanking Susan for her talk today. <laughs> I'm sure if you remember a question in the next few minutes, uh, Sue will certainly remain here while I uncouple all the equipment. Um, for uh, those of you who aren't regulars, you will find a eva an evaluation form on your chairs. I would be very grateful if you could please complete these even if you have completed them in the past, um, as we are always looking for suggestions, ideas, and sadly, complaints too. Um, you'll also find uh, a brochure about the Freemasons, uh, so hopefully that will encourage visitors if you have not been before. And finally, our next talk will be on the 8th of November, again, it's a Tuesday, and that will be by Professor Alan... Uh, 
not Alan Abrahamson, Peter Abrahamson, um, who has spoken before. His feature tends to be um, anatomy and art history, and he'll be focusing on two bronzes attributed to Michelangelo. So please do get your bookings in for that uh, lecture. Again, it will have speech-to-text provided by our colleagues at Stage Text, for which we are very grateful. Thank you for coming. <laughs>